I invite you to take your Bibles with me as we go to the book of Jude. Wonderful singing this evening to prepare our hearts for the Word of God. I love to sing with God's people. Amen. Amen. I love to hear His truth, rehearse the gospel, and remind ourselves of the truth we have in Christ. As we turn in our Bibles, we're turning to the book of Jude, and we introduce a new study this evening on Sunday evenings. It's always interesting how the Lord works, and my plan all along has been, once we got through the summer season, to start the book of Nehemiah. And uh, that is in front of us, that remains out there in front of us, but the Lord in recent days, uh, particularly beginning on my trip recently, just reading and immersing myself in the scriptures with a lot of extra time, brought me across the book of Jude. And I thought, what a great little book to jump into before we go to the book of Nehemiah. So I feel like where we're studying is of the Lord and his leading and guiding, at least in your pastor's heart as I spend time seeking his face and studying the word of God. And so we introduce the book of Jude this evening. And I want us to, if you look at the book of Jude, it's a small book, maybe about the size of a chapter of other books. But this evening, to get it into our hearts and minds, we're going to read it together. So I hope you find your place in the Word of God. And it's just 25 verses, not very long at all. So we'll begin there in verse 1. And the Word of God reads, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, I, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, having gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These, speaking of the apostates, these are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, 
carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are, notice the theme here, the word ungodly in this one verse, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them, snatching them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Well, this is the word of God for you, his people. As we look into the book of Jude, the book of Jude has been called many things, one of the shortest books in the Bible, of course, but it has been called by some commentators the most neglected book in the Old Testament, and there's a couple of reasons why this might be the case. It is a short book, and so many people think of it in ter terms of size, much like they do the epistles of John, 2nd John and 3rd John, as obscure uh, menial, small. Jude is that book that comes right before Re Revelation. It's the way most people think about the book of Jude. Another reason is, is that it may be, in sense of its brevity, it's only 25 verses. People tend to overlook it. But in another sense, it is a strange book. It has a different sound. It, it has different elements and aspects to it, different than other epistles in the New Testament. Jude speaks of some things that are not easy to identify, and he quotes from the book First Enoch and also the Assumption of Moses. And so it is distinctly different than other New Testament letters in the way that Jude pulls in other extra-biblical sources. By the way, Paul does this on a number of occasions, so Jude is not the only one who does it, but he distinctly does it in the way he puts the letter together. Its brevity is one sense why it may be uh, in a neglected book, its differentness or its strangeness, but also its tone. The tone is very blunt. And as we'll get into in just a moment, Jesus had two half-brothers, and both of them in their epistles and their letters in the New Testament speak very bluntly. 
very much in the Jewish mindset, very directly, and it is very a call for contention, a call to fight, if you will. And so when we think about that in the sense of tone, tone is a word that we hear a lot about today. Watch your tone. We're, we're very interested in tone. Uh, words like your tone and winsome are, are words that Christians certainly pursue and acclaim, and that is not to say that we should seek to be a jerk or seek not to be kind or winsome. But whenever it comes to the call to Scripture to fight for the truth, if you will, or to contend earnestly for the faith and to choose between that and tone, we must side with Scripture and, and simply let the chips fall where they may. So again, we always need to check our hearts and our goal. But regarding tone, Thomas Schreiner says this. I want to quote from his commentary on the book of Jude. He says, The message of Jude is alien to many in today's world. For Jude emphasized that the Lord will certainly judge evil intruders who are attempting to corrupt the church. The message of judgment strikes many in our world as, quote, intolerant and unloving. And contrary to the message of, the, of love elsewhere proclaimed in the New Testament. Nevertheless, this short letter should not be ignored. Some of the most beautiful statements about God's sustaining grace are found in this little book of Jude. And they shine with a greater brilliance when contrasted with the false doctrine and false teachers who had departed from the Christian faith. We can also say that the message of judgment is especially relevant to people today. For our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. Well, as we look at the book of Jude, I think he's right, and that's Thomas Schreiner's commentary on that. I think he has a point and summarized it in better ways than I could. So that's, therefore, I just read directly from his commentary. In a sense, to take a survey just for a few moments, we've got the book of Jude in our hearts and minds. We just read it together. As we walk through, we want to ask some questions of the text. What is the key doctrine in the book of Jude? Well, the key doctrine is the doctrine of apostasy. Here in this book, Jude makes mention of the aspect of apostasy. And apostasy is the defection from the true biblical faith that is in Christ Jesus. We can think of examples in the New Testament where Paul speaks of Demas, who was once with us, but yet has departed from us, having loved this present age or this present world. In verses 3, 4, 8, and 10, 16 through 19, apostasy is the focus of Jude's teaching here and the warning that he gives to the church. So what is the key doctrine that we see and we will see as we walk through the book of Jude is the doctrine of apostasy. Another question we want to ask, as always, when we come to the scriptures is this. What does this book teach us about God's character? That's always what I want to know. What does this book tell me about who God is? And friends, it's just a reminder to us that as we read the scriptures, we read them to know our God to know Him more intimately, not to simply check a Bible reading plan or to simply say, check, they're done, and then put the Bible on the shelf and we move beyond that. But we, we read in the sense of a relationship through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we ask these questions of the text. And what we find is, what does this book tell us about God's character? Is In verse 4, we find that God is gracious. We have this reminder from Jude himself that God is a gracious God. Also in four, that God is Lord. Verses 5 and 6 and verses 14 and 15, we find that God is a judging God. No news to any Bible-preaching church. 
but that God is a judging God. And this is not in contrast with his attribute of love. Verses 1 through 3 and verse 21 also teach us that God is not only judging, but that he is loving. And these are held in perfect harmony. There is not a a character flaw in in God's attributes or in his character. Oftentimes when men would accuse God of this or what the Bible's teaching of who he is, who are we to, we would echo what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, who are you, O man, to reply against God or to bring an accusation against God? It is exactly because God is loving that he is a judging God. We also find in this epistle that God is glorious. Jude stirs our hearts up to praise in his closing benediction in verses 24 and 25. And these verses are one of my favorite benedictions to read to the church as we conclude a worship service. And it reminds us that God is glorious. The last thing we see is what does Jude teach us about the character of God is that God is wise. God is wise. Verse 25, to God our Savior, notice, who alone is is wise. Friends, we recognize all these things to be true. And may the Lord help us and teach us and stir up our hearts to seek him. Well, not only does what does this book teach us about who God is, but we also want to look and ask What does this book teach us about Christ? Where is Christ present in the book of Jude? And we find this answer as well in the opening verses in verses 1 through 3. Notice how how Jude gives particular attention to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Christ Jesus. A very strong second doctrine that we see, if we were going to mention this outside of apostasy, is the preservation that we have in Christ. What a comforting doctrine it is to think of our preservation in Christ. Preserving grace. Some people refer to this as the perseverance of the saints. I prefer to call it preserving grace in Christ. The security that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So more about that in just a moment. Now we look here into the text. And speaking of preserving grace, that is the essential, the theme of verses 24 and 25. It's speaking about how God is able to keep us from stumbling and will preserve us until the presence of God, our Savior. Now, as we look into the book and move into verses 1 through uh, one and 2 this evening, verses 1 through 3, if time will allow for us, I want us to look at it under these three headings. Number one, the author. Number two, the audience. And number three, the aim. Number one, the author. Number two, the audience. And number three, the aim that Jude has as he introduces this epistle to the church. Now, number one, the author that we find. Who is the author of this book? Well, obviously, it is Jude. And then that leads us to the question, well, who is Jude? Oftentimes, we think of you know, society's only understanding or maybe remembrance of the, book, of the name Jude is the song, Hey Jude, if you will, in common culture. But this is Jude. Who is Jude? Well, we looked at the apostles this morning, and we're going to find some dovetailing from our message this morning into some slight ways. But Jude was not an apostle in the sense of he was one of the original 12, but he is considered an apostle. He is, in his Hebrew form of his name, his name is Judah. In the Greek form of his name, it is Judas. And obviously, Judas has the connotations that it has, as we noted this morning. But the English translators translated his name for us in the English translation as simply Jude. And this is probably to keep it as a key distinction from Judas Iscariot, if you will. 
And so that practice continues until this day. It's a reminder to us that the names John, Simon, Judah, Jude, Judas were some of the most popular names of the day. And that's why many of them have a nickname or another name that they go by, which makes it confusing for us as we look into the scriptures. But this is Jude, also known as Judas or maybe even Judah. But notice how he introduces himself in verse 1. Jude, the servant of Christ, the brother of James. Well, which James is he referring to? Well, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. And when you look into how James introduces the book of James, he also identifies himself in a similar way. What's kind of funny, though, is he does not mention Jude in his reference of his letter. So you can't help but think of a little bit of a, a brotherly rivalry, at least in my imagination, I think of that, where Jude gives recognition to James, and James does not give recognition to Jude. James simply says, James, a slave of Christ. Here, Jude says, Jude, the servant of Christ and the brother of James. Well, we know that the Lord was virgin-born, but when we look into the scriptures, it clearly indicates that Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, uh, the children of Joseph and Mary. And so I hope you have your Bibles ready. We're going to be looking at some key passages of scripture to kind of make our case and to look at how this, what the scriptures tell us about who Jude is. And what we find when you turn to Matthew 13, verse 54, is that, it, that, that this context speaking of how this is the relation of Jude to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, it tells us of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth. That's the theme of the passage. And the reason this is notable is that Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. And this is that classic passage where we understand that a prophet does not have honor in his own country. That's a phrase that we hear in common vernacular and common culture. Well, maybe not so much anymore, but we have in, in history past. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, when Jesus had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? I always love these questions. Is this not a carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Notice there. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What we find here in this passage is a couple of things, and I just want to take note of something on the surface level. And I love the phrase, they were offended at him. Text after text, if anyone has the right to be offended, it's Christ. Christ never seems to be offended, but he does not cast his pearls before swine, not even among his own family. That's a phrase that we see in Scripture, but he, notice the text says he did not do many mighty works. They're lost. He's not offended. But they are offended at him. Now, that's a comprehensive phrase. We don't know who all is offended. But it's clear in the text, number one, that Judas, there's some names of his, of his siblings. And Judas is one of them. But also, the second thing we see there is that there is unbelief. At this point of Jesus' ministry, and his public ministry, not even his own brothers and sisters believe in him. Mary and Joseph seemingly are the only ones who have the faith and understand who he is because of his supernatural birth. But there's more to the story. That's, that's the good news. So what we find when we compare Scripture with Scripture is that Jude was not a believer during the earthly ministry of Christ. 
Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 7 and verse 1. And this is another passage that the Holy Spirit takes note to tell us about how the feelings were of his siblings toward Jesus' message and also toward his ministry. John chapter 7, verse 1, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now note here verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Even his brothers, as they hear his message, it, it seemingly appears as if they're on the periphery. They're around, if you will, kind of coming and going. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that not even James, not even Jude, believe in Christ and the claims that he is making at this point. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, the context, interestingly enough, is just after Mark's account of where Jesus chose the 12 apostles, a cross-reference of what we looked at this morning. Mark describes the response of the people in this way, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And he says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not even so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and lay hold of him. For they said, He is out of his mind. In the context here, his own people is speaking of his, his family, his kin, his relation. And so we take note of who is this author? Who is Jude? Well, this is the, the half-brother of Jesus. But there was a point to where Jude was not in Christ. Jude was his brother. Jude grew up with Jesus. It was not Jesus' character. The Bible tells us very clearly that he is obviously the sinless Savior. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with both God and man. But for some reason, the scales are over his siblings' eyes. But what we do find in the Scriptures is that by the time of Pentecost, the Scriptures do not give us a ton of detail, but just after the ascension and at the time of Pentecost, Jesus' siblings come to faith in Christ. They're a part of that upper room assembly and gathering. And we find this in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. What we find there is the 12 apostles have gathered together. And there are also his siblings present. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the text tells us that when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then there's the names of the apostles, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Notice here, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So here's what we find is that by the Holy Spirit's power, they come to saving faith in Christ. All we know is at the cross, they're not there. As Jesus is dying, he looks to John and says, gives him the exhortation to care for his mother. And obviously they're not present there, or at least we assume because of that exhortation that they're not present there. But what we find here is somewhere between there and here, they begin to assess the death of Christ. They begin to think through his claims. They begin to reflect and they begin to prepare. They begin to see his, not only his death, burial, and resurrection, and then their hearts are turned to faith in Christ, and they are among the early church and those present there in the upper room. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I find this fascinating. Tell me the journey of faith. One of my favorite things is, is tell me how you came to faith in Christ. If that doesn't enamor you, if that doesn't stir up your heart to praise, then, then may the Lord help you. What we find here is that Jude was one of those that was not among the number of the apostles, as we saw this morning, but thank God for God's grace, even to his own sibling, to where he saves them by his sovereign grace. Another question we could ask is, how did his brothers come to believe savingly in Christ? And so this is the final question. I've tried to touch on it, but Paul gives us kind of a definitive answer on it. And you don't have to turn there. I can read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. And Paul writes in this passage about the resurrection, this classic passage about the resurrection. Notice what he says. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain at the present. Notice here, verse 7, After that he was seen by James and then all the apostles. That's the half-brother of Jesus. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. When we compare the Scriptures to the Scriptures, it makes it clear that in this process of time, in the unfolding of the early church, with what Paul has to say, and also the gospel records, that Jude is not only the half-brother of Christ, but he has seen the power of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, when I say his death, it doesn't seem like he's present at the cross, but considering the message and the effect of all of it put together, and we see that he comes to faith in Christ. Now, if Jude is the half-brother of Christ, as we come back to verses 1 and 2, the question we could legitimately ask is, why do he and James not describe themselves in that way? What a, what a point of credential. What a badge of honor to say we are the, the half-brother of Jesus. But what we see, the answer to that question, is their humility. They, they themselves have been humbled by God's saving grace. And as we look into the text, we find a couple of things about his relationship to Christ. First of all, his relationship to Christ is a saving one. We made emphasis on this already. But here we find in the text that his relationship to Christ is a saving one. Christ makes clear in the Gospels that even early in the Gospels, Christ makes a distinction between his physical family and now that his kingdom is here, his spiritual family. We see this in a number of passages. For example, in Luke chapter 12, I believe it is, where his parents come seeking him when he is lost. He gives them that defining question of, of why are you seeking me? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? That is a key hinge point in the ministry of Christ in that he makes a distinction between his relationship with Mary and Joseph and reminds them of why God has sent him to come to earth, that he must be about his father's business. I'll never forget hearing a lesson one time on that text, and the moralistic takeaway was simply this, go to church more often because Jesus was there at church and he was in the place of church when his parents found them. Friends, that is not the point of that passage. It is a key line of demarcation where Jesus is pursuing and without, uh, with the Father's will and is called to public ministry. And he makes that distinction to his, his parents. In another passage, he makes clear as his, father, excuse me, his mother and his brothers are standing outside calling to him. And his disciples and those present there say, Do you not realize that your mother and brothers are outside seeking you? And he ignores that and seemingly says, who are my mother and 
Who is my brother's? And he makes clear that here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my mother. Here's the point we're trying to make. James, excuse me, Jude, in the book of Jude, and both James as well, are simply content to make their relationship to Christ the saving one. The point is not a physical, fleshly relationship. They've been born again, and they value their relationship as a spiritual one. Not just that he's my brother, but he's my savior. Friends, is he your savior this evening? Do you see Christ for who he really is? We think of Mary's Magnificent in Luke chapter 2, where she receives the news of, of, of being the one to, to have Christ, calling his name Christ, and Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And there's a key line in there where she responds, My soul does rejoice in God my Savior. She sees the relationship for what it is. And now, not only Joseph and Mary believe savingly in Christ, but now we see Jude and James call him that as well. I'm including James because they had that unique relationship of being the half-brothers of Christ. As we look into Jude, we see there are four key times where he himself, in this book, calls him Lord. Verse 4, we know this relationship is a saving relationship. In verse 4, he says, "...who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ." Verse 14, quoting Enoch, he says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Verse 17, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the language he's using. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. Verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So what we find is that his relationship with Christ, who is Jude? He's the half-brother of Jesus. And his relationship with Christ is a saving one. And we rejoice with him. Man, amen. Secondly, we notice that his relationship with Christ is not only a saving one, but it is a serving one. And this is a key characteristic, not only of the half-brothers of Christ, but they follow in Paul's pattern as well, of identifying themselves as slaves of Christ. Who are we? Well, we're a number of things the scriptures make clear. Uh, the Bible gives many references and call, names that we can call ourselves. We are the peculiar people of God. We are a royal priesthood, to quote Peter's language. But one of the most famous, uh, popular designations of how to describe ourselves, especially from the disciples and the apostles, is simply this. We are slaves of Christ. Notice with me there in verse 1, uh, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. His relationship to Christ is not only a saving one, but it is a serving one. This word bondservant in our text that we're reading from this evening, and in most, I think the ESV renders it as bondservant, I believe the um, King James, New King James does as well. The Holman Christian Standard, the new, the, um, and the Legacy Standard Version, a brand new version that I really like, by the way, refers to this as it's properly called slaves of Christ. Wherever you see bondservant, it actually, the literal rendering is, we are slaves to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His relationship to Christ is a serving one. What Jude wants us to know as he describes himself is that I am a servant of Christ. It is the great privilege of my life to lay down my life for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we know from this letter that he is ministering to believers. This is not a letter to where it's designated as a particular church. 
It's not a letter to where it is uh, something to where it is a particular location. Those things are not given to us. But there is some indication here that he is supported uh, by a local congregation. Paul makes mention of this. We, we will not turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, where Paul is making an argument that he has the right to financial support, but yet he chooses not to. He, he makes reference to those who do receive financial report. And he mentions the other apostles. And he notice here, he says, the brothers of the Lord Jesus receive that support financially from the body of Christ. So what we see here is that his relationship to Christ is a serving one. A third thing we want to point out from the text is that it is a very serious one. His relationship to Christ is a very serious one. Notice how the opening verses of the text tell us that he desires to write to them, much like Paul says so often, I desire to come to you, I desire to minister to you, I desire that I could uh, have fruit that abounds to your account. Here as well, he expresses a desire to come to them in a, in to write, verse 3, about their common salvation. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you, Concerning, notice here, our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Here we have the purpose of the letter. We've talked about the key doctrine is the theme of apostasy. And so when we consider this book, it is a book that is written really for all time. I think that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. All of Scripture is given for our learning and our admonition, but this is particularly a book that is designated as is for, uh, for the church. There's never been an age in the church that has not had battles, quote, to fight. If you don't think there are battles to fight, then you're not paying close attention. In fact, I'll tell you this, a lot of people have problems with the book of Jude and problems with pastors and teachers who seemingly, it seems as if they're fighting against something. Now listen, we all know that there are pastors and teachers who certainly have, quote, a fighting spirit. And if that's the goal of that pastor and teacher, then that's the wrong goal. You know, that, if that is the aim of why they, if that's what drives the, you know, their ministry or the fuel of the fire or the engine in their car, then that's someone headed for a crash. But if in faithfulness to Scripture we find ourselves earnestly contending for the faith and what Jude describes here, the friends, we are found in the place of faithfulness. I told you last Sunday night, that after 30 hours of traveling, I found myself in a taxi with a, with a guy, and we we're riding on the road, and who do I hear on the radio no less than Joel Osteen? So just as a reminder that, that false doctrine and false teaching is, is permeating the globe, and so there's always concerns. There's always things to take attention of. And so we find here that this letter that he writes, his relationship to Christ is a serious one, and he, he's writing to the church out of a concern for the church. He desires to write about their common salvation. He desires to write a, a new letter, much like maybe Paul wrote in Ephesians, where he exalts in and, and unfolds the glories of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. But here he takes dead aim at the dangers that are facing the church, especially false teachers. In, in fact, his message here in the book of Jude, verses 1 through 3, rivals the spirit in the tone that Paul expresses in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, when he says, Brethren, I'm so amazed that you are so quickly removed from the gospel. And then he gives the exhortation that if anyone, even Paul himself or an angel of light, should come preaching another gospel, let them go to hell. That's strong language. 
And this is that type of tone that, that, that Jude is giving here that matches Paul in Galatians chapter 1. So it's evident that Jude is a courageous servant of Christ. Now, I'll admit to you before getting into the text and reading uh, the scriptures and reading commentaries that, that my knowledge of who Jude was, was was limited. And I just am refreshed by learning about who he is in the scriptures and taking into account his full relationship to Christ. So number one, we've considered the author. Number two, very quickly, we want to look in verses one and two at the audience. The audience that is that he's writing to. The audience in verses 1 and 2. Now, we know some very specific things concerning the, the, the writing of the letter, as I mentioned just a moment ago. But it is clear that it is not very specific, but he's writing to this audience out of love. He's writing about issues that concern him greatly. He's changed the purpose of his letter. He's writing to protect them. He's writing to shepherd them carefully. And that is one of the works of a pastor shepherd is to shepherd the sheep and with a staff, and it's a reminder that the shepherds have staffs, and that sometimes those staffs have to be used in a proactive way to protect the sheep against the wolves. One thing we find about whoever this audience is, and the false teachers that are already, it seems as if, are among them, is that false teachers are not advertising that they are false teachers. We saw in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7 that they are dressed like wolves. So it's one of those things that sometimes people don't like the language of contesting or contending or warning against false teachers. But one of the dynamics about who false teachers is, is we, we only know them by their fruit over the course of time. They don't have labels or uh, things on their shirt or their clothing that says, hey, just so you know, I'm a wolf. I'm here among the sheep, but I'm actually a wolf. No, no way whatsoever. And so in verse 3, we find that he calls him, gives him that calling to contend for the faith. And verse 4 tells us why. Whoever this audience is, he wants them to know that certain men have crept in, and notice here, unnoticed. They've not announced who they are or what their purposes are or what their intentions are. Now, this is actually a theme all throughout the New Testament. And what I find is so interesting is that this is simply the first century. This is the, the, the early church exploding in power in multiplication in number, experiencing the, the presence and power of Jesus in a, just in an interesting way. We have the same power today. I'm not trying to compare their experience to ours, but no doubt the pioneering aspect of the early church is a fascinating one. But yet already, just a few years after the ascension of Christ, false teachers have already begun to come in. In fact, that's one of the key purposes of each one of Paul's epistles as well. We find that men seek to come in and, and to per pervert the gospel of Christ, to threaten the purity of the gospel. So here Jude is calling them to action. And so he writes to them that they must contend for the faith. Now a lot of people ask the question, what does that look like? How do we contend for the faith? Well, he does not go into a ton of examples in how to do that. But just to answer that question very quickly, we, we see that the main means of defending and contending for the faith is the preaching of God's Word. The sound teaching and preaching of God's Word, not only in the pulpit, but also in small groups. And also when you spend time uh, renewing your mind in Scripture, your exposure to God's truth is the chief means to fighting against false doctrine. One of the biggest problems in the church today is that people don't know their Bibles. They don't know the Word of God. 
And so when we consider this audience that he's writing to, he's exhorting them to earnestly contend for the faith. Friends, as our Sunday school class has been considering in the last two weeks, it's just a reminder to us that the battle for our faith is really, maybe you could simply put it as the battle for our time. How do we spend our time? Do we neglect God's truth and God's word? If we're to answer this question honestly, how do we contend for the faith? We must start with the public ministry and also the private ministry of the word of God in our hearts and lives. Friend, how much time have you spent in God's word in the last week, last couple of weeks? Do you measure it in some way? Do you keep track of it some way? That's, the main point is that you are immersing yourself through the truth of scripture. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and he asks the Father to sanctify his disciples through the truth, for, their, for his word is truth. And so we will find that there's a direct correlation to the call to battle, if you will, for the gospel that Jude calls the church to, and the correlation also in our being immersed in Scripture. Listen, we lose heart, we are faint heart in our practice and application when we wander away from the truth and power of God's word and the power of prayer. That's the second. We can start walking through the spiritual disciplines, and that's my, not my aim this evening. But you can simply reduce it down to exposure to God's truth, preaching, teaching, public exposure, private exposure, hiding God's word in our hearts so that we may not sin against him. We will find ourselves being strengthened in the things of the Lord. As Paul calls us in Ephesians chapter 6, to take on the sword of the Spirit, to do war with the evil one. We, we're not called to necessarily engage Satan as we see Michael the archangel does not. He contests and he, he some measure is doing battle with Satan, but he simply says, the Lord rebuke you. Friend, our version of that is, is using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Following Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 4 saying, it is written. It is written. It is written. We have nothing to say apart from Scripture when it comes to fighting false doctrine and fighting against Satan and the evil one. So we're called to do battle. We do it in a spirit of faith. Now as we conclude this evening, Jude wants us to know this. He wants us to know that how do we go forth in a spirit of faith, like what he calls us to. We're weak. We're frail. We're fearful. We are sheep, for crying out loud. That's what God calls us. There's times we feel bold and we feel like we could go attack hell with a water gun, so to, so to speak. But when the moment of battle comes, we find ourselves fizzling. So how do we do this? Well, to look at the end of Jude, and just giving an overview here, he reminds us that the sovereign God is able to sustain us, to hold us. Look at the closing verses of Jude chapter 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Know this, you are secure in Christ. I don't want, don't want you to be foolish here, but you are invincible until God is done with you. You are to fulfill his will for you. Take confidence in that. Take courage and don't be stupid, but take confidence that God has a purpose for you. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Coming back to the beginning of the book, verse 2, notice what he says. Don't forget that your sovereign God has saved you and called you. He's shown you mercy. He's given you peace. And you've experienced his saving love and his perfecting, chastening love. That word love is pregnant with meaning. His love is at work in and through you. His love will keep you. 
His love will bring you to the throne of God. Well, friends, let's be confident in God's work in us, not only in our homes and individually as, as, as a church and as families, but let's be confident in the purpose that he has for us as a church. Reading from Philippians 1 verse 6, where Paul gives a similar uh, exhortation, he says, Be confident. I am confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. Well, friends, as we conclude this, just this introduction this, this evening, I want to give you the exhortation from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Amen and amen. Well, listen, may the Lord go before you this week and bless you. May